My name is Patrick J. McGinnis, and I coined the term FOMO. That's short for fear of missing out, and it's why some people end up following the crowd. But we're not like them. We're part of a new species that isn't afraid to do things differently. I call us FOMO sapiens. And this is the show where you'll meet people like us, phenomenal FOMO sapiens, to learn how they find the courage and the ideas to live exceptional lives. FOMO. Welcome back to another episode of FOMO Sapiens, the show for people who don't just follow the crowd, but instead take their own path to success in business and in life. I'm your host, Patrick J. McGinnis, venture capitalist by day, author and podcaster by night, and of course, FOMO Sapiens 24-7. Today, we're going to be talking about my topic of the moment, and I bet a lot of yours as well, AI, specifically how AI is going to change creativity. Now, this all comes back to, I had a lunch with this incredible designer called Sebastian Irasuris, Chilean, and he lives in New York, and we were introduced by a mutual friend, had lunch. He wanted to talk about a book idea he has for AI and how it's going to change the creative world, and this was a while ago. This was not recent. You know, It was at least six months ago, but he everything he said came true, and so I called him and said, Sebastian, come and talk to us because you clearly know a lot about this topic, and so that's what I wanted to do. He is so thoughtful. His vision, his way of thinking about AI and how it's going to change our world is just It's something you got to listen to. And he's just an incredible guy, a really creative guy. Let me tell you a little bit about Sebastian. Now, acclaimed as one of the most prolific designers of his generation, Sebastian Erasuris has developed a scientific method to measure and enhance the creative process. The New York-based designer, artist, and entrepreneur has been a guest speaker at Harvard's Tech Lab, the Draper CEO Summit, Wired Magazine, and the Tate Modern, among others. Now, he has been portrayed in over 50 magazine covers. That's insane. And he's been featured in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and many other publications. Now, his large-scale public art installations have been showcased in more than 100 exhibitions and included in permanent museum collections around the world. And he's currently writing a book, as I said, about the impact of AI and the creative industries. And we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about, first of all, just his vision, what he sees, how the world's going to change, just like what is going on in Sebastian's head. Second, we're going to talk about how this is all going to impact the creative fields and other fields. We're going to talk about how we should prepare. And then Sebastian's going to give us homework. We're going to talk about where you can get smart on all this stuff. Like, what should we all be reading right now? He will give us a couple of places to look. Now, speaking of places to learn information, I have launched a Substack, as I just said. It's hard to say that word, but I'll say it again, Substack. And you can find out more about what's going on in my head, what I'm thinking about, also, what's coming down the pipeline on the show, just head over to patrickjmcginnis.substack.com. Subscribe, read, comment, check it out. I'd be so grateful if you would. All right, and now on to the interview. As you know, I'd like to start every interview with the same question. And the question is this, what's a formative decision you've had to make to get to where you are today? I had to very quickly realize that uh, I needed to be broke and poor for multiple years until I could um, until I could make a name. The reality is that to become uh, an artist or a designer as an author is probably mathematically as difficult as becoming a soccer player. 
And mm -hmm. uh, therefore, uh, even though the temptation, if you're doing relatively well of taking a position in a design studio or uh, something of the sort, an advertising agency is, is very tempting. Um, it, it's necessary to continue to just endure the hardships and try to push through to create your own thing so that you can uh, later on uh, be an independent thinker, artist, creative. Question I got now, I don't usually ask a follow up, but this is a good, you just gave a great answer that I makes me stop for Roki. Number one is how did you design your life to be sustainable during that period of time? Um, that's a really good question. So uh, I try to understand that no matter how disciplined we think we are to follow through with our ideals, we're all weak and therefore it, it needed to, the big dream needs to be always broken down into small steps. And knowing that those steps are relatively small and having an out after X amount of time is always helpful. So for me, uh, I told myself, I'm going to go at this full speed for two years. If after two years, I cannot sustain myself, I will take uh, a job in an advertising agency. That self-created safety net uh, was uh, a trick that allowed me to have the tranquility to be fine being broke for two years and to be fine presenting a hundred projects and being told no a hundred times because it had a time span after which the torture would be over. Uh, coincidentally enough, it was only towards the end of the two years that I finally started to get a couple projects approved. Uh, in between, I had a girlfriend break up with me because I was too broke compared to the rest of the group of friends or whatever. So um, it, it, it's interesting, but it, it really is necessary to have little mental breaks of this is how much I'm running and then I'm taking a rest if needed. That's actually very good advice because I think what happens to people is they do, people do that. They say, okay, I'm leaving my job. I'm going to start something. I'm going to find something. I'm going to give myself six months. Six months, I mean, like it just isn't enough time. Yeah. Two years is a sensible amount of time it's, you know, it's enough. You can endure it. It may be hard, but you can endure it. But more than that, you give yourself runway. Two years is sufficient time to figure out if your ideas make sense or not to pivot three different times. You can't do it in six months. Nothing happens in six months. So, so that, that's really good advice. Now you managed to pull it off. And so to get started, let's just talk about, you know, what, how would you describe yourself? Cause I've been reading up on you, Sebastian. It ain't easy to describe you. You're a complex FOMO sapiens. Uh -huh. So explain to us who you are. Sure. Um, so uh, I was, I'm, I'm a Chilean artist, designer based in New York, uh, very involved with technology. And uh, some of the decisive elements in my life were that I was raised in London and that my father uh, did his PhD in how to educate art. Every kid in uh, Santiago, Chile, where I'm, where I'm from, every kid in the country studies the art program he designed, an art program he first tested on me as a guinea pig. And so I was raised in the arts, and I understand the arts as a science. That's something that no artist does. Every artist and the cliche of the art and, and the art academics and so on, think of this as a very almost a religious practice that is representative of uh, the uh, 
innermost depths uh, of our humanity. Nevertheless, for me, it is not that different from math or science, and it can be broken down, it can be measured, and so on. Uh, seeing life that way allows me to see the creative challenges as something that uh, is both infinitely more uh, profound and, and complex because it is a science, it goes beyond us, but at the same time it is uh, mathematically uh, trainable and, and its mysteries can be uh, resolved. And so uh, I've used that theory to train myself in every possible way as a uh, high endurance athlete practicing the arts as if the arts were a science. Now, I didn't know this story about your dad. Thanks for sharing that. And I'm curious, you know, so folks who many of you have probably been in Chile listeners, but if you haven't been, it's a, it's a very nice place. Uh, but it also is a place that went through a lot of upheaval in the 70s and 80s mm -hmm. and then came out of a military dictatorship and has really emerged as a, as a very successful case study in Latin America in a lot of different ways. Like nothing's perfect. There's, you know, there are issues like in many other places. But I'm curious, do you think that, a, you know, it's quite amazing that, the, that there's a national sort of methodology for teaching the arts. Do you think that having that kind of framework and teaching children to think about the arts at an early age helps to create a more cohesive society in a place like Chile? Um, I think, unfortunately, uh, no matter how hard my father tried to create an arts program that could uh, really contribute, uh, this was a country coming out of a dictatorship in which uh, the practice of teaching art had been eliminated. Um, so, so he basically had to do a lot of work just to get it to a normal level that was nowhere near the arts education that you would have as a student in Europe, say, or, or so on. And so, um, I think unfortunately Chile as a country is fractured not only by the past dictatorship, but also by, uh, big, uh, issues of class access to culture. Uh, and giant wealth disparities. Um, so you see the same wealth disparities that you might find in the US, maybe even bigger, mm. but also with mm. the element of class that is basically a hidden racism. And so, so Chile's fractures, uh, I don't think helped me. Uh, the one thing that mm. was incredibly helpful of living in, in, in Chile for some period in my life, I think would also apply to many uh, third world emerging economies, and that's the idea of scarcity. The, the fact that there, there are many things that don't exist when you need them forces you to be able to be creative. It forces you to come up with other solutions, and that's on a daily basis. And so I think there's something to be said about the importance of scarcity uh, that uh, emerging economies help uh, forge into the education of those who pass through them as, as people that have to adapt. And we cannot simply always demand the perfect solution. Often we have to do with what's there and we have to find a way to solve things quickly and just move on. Yeah, it cultivates entrepreneurial thinking, which is, and I think it's interesting because if you grew up in a place where there was scarcity, 
your ability to respond to scarcity is much higher. Like when during the pandemic, I remember, you know, you're walking to the supermarket and half of the things they're used to buying aren't there. For many people, that was a new experience. Mm -hmm. For others, it was something that they'd grown up with and were able to sort of contextualize and say, okay, how do we work around this? But it, it is a valuable mindset. FOMO. Tudo bem, meus queridos FOMO sapiens. Now that right there was Portuguese. And as you know, I love speaking foreign languages, but I'm not alone. One in five Americans have learned a new language on their bucket list. If that's you, make 2024 the year you finally check it off that list with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's tips and tools are approachable, accessible, and delivered with conversation-based teaching so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Now, FOMO sapiens, you know I speak four languages, and it takes work to stay on top of them, especially with French. C'est difficile. But with Babbel, I'm able to practice practical conversations that I can actually use in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash FOMO. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash FOMO. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash FOMO. Rules and restrictions may apply. Now, I want to shift gears a little bit because when you and I first met, we were introduced by a mutual friend and we had lunch and we started talking about AI. And, you know, this was this was a little over, I guess, six, seven months ago or something like that. And we continued this conversation. But, you know, you were talking about AI and I was quite intrigued. But I remember just thinking to myself, like, wow, this guy just really loves AI. But, you know, I wasn't really sure how to think about what you were saying to me. And you've gone on. You've, you've recently done an installation of augmented reality sculptures titled State of the Art AI. Uh, you did that in February of 23 at Noya House and in its new location in Venice Beach. But in the meantime, you're doing all this. The world has caught up to you. Once again, Sebastian, you're just ahead of the, ahead of the crowd. And so I decided, because I wanted to honor your level of AI savvy and have a good conversation around this, the best way to figure out how to talk to you about this would be to ask chat gpt uh-huh a couple a couple of things so i asked it what i should be asking you and and so we're not going to rely on that solely because then i'd be out of a job but i did think it was kind of interesting so let's let's get into this okay so i here's the first thing it told me i should ask you it said sebastian Erosuris is a talented designer and artist with a diverse portfolio so there are many questions you could ask him about chat gpt it's true Here's one possible question. By the way, this is 3.5, not 4, FYI. This is the question. As an artist and designer, how do you think technology like ChatGPT will impact the creative fields? Do you see it as a tool for enhancing creativity or is it a, p- a potential threat to traditional artistic expression? That's a great question by uh, an AI about AI. Um, mm. The biggest problem we've had with artificial intelligence is the speed at which it's developing, right? So the conversation we had six months ago uh, was a conversation in which I'm focused on first principles in which this is being constructed, the speed at which it's growing and the consequences Mm -hmm. it's going to create. Um, But people are only generally seeing what is currently available. So they see the 3.5 version or the free version or the now the full version. No one's seeing the version 0.5, 0.6, 0.8, 0.12, right? So in the short run right now in this version, artificial intelligence is just a tool. 
I don't know if point five will continue to just be a tool anymore. Maybe by point mm. five, we already have something that is making its own independent ideas. And maybe the quality of those ideas are not just derivative of previous elements, but start to compete with the quality of ideas that humans could be thinking right now. That means that we go from very quickly from a tool that can replicate what we already do in a much faster manner and allowing any person without any experience in the creative fields to all of a sudden be creating uh, content that would have required decades to master, right? Mm. But maybe potentially very soon creating content that is better than what the professionals of today can do. Now, uh, that immediately then generates two paths. One is the path in which we will have the, uh, a, a response against artificial intelligence in which there will be a big group of people that will say, hey, we want art that is created by a human. We do not want art created by a machine. And there will be others that just won't care and will say, I will take whatever art seems to be better seems to be more creative, seems to offer a stronger experience. The second option, naturally, if it continues growing and evolving, becomes scarier and scarier, bigger and bigger, and the path for the artist becomes smaller and smaller. So it, as I think about that, and I think about not just the art world, but also the music world, right? You think about the fact that, and I agree, and I think even sooner or probably in, in line, you're going to have the ability to go and say, hey, create, um, write, a, write an album that based on Billy Joel's first three albums. And it's going to generate an album that sounds like your favorite Billy Joel. Mm -hmm. But whether or not he's compensated for the IP, that's a question that remains open. And what's probably going to happen is that people who are entrenched, that are incumbents, who have, you know, in the system benefits today, are going to say, stop, I don't want that. You know, you're disrupting my, my sort of, my whole business model. And then you're going to have folks who say, oh, I don't really care. You know, I'm happy to go by the new rules. Just like you do with every other media, whether it's social media. Mm -hmm. The people who uh, are the upstarts and have nothing to lose will be willing to jump into new technology. And as a result, there will always be participants. And I assume that's the reason why these things will eventually sort of come out and win. Do you think that that's an accurate interpretation of what could happen or how do you see that? I think it is, but I think it is much more exaggerated than that. Um, because I think there's some registration of Socrates uh, complaining against writing, right? Uh, apparently writing, mm. which if you think about it, writing is a technology, uh, was considered for Socrates as problematic because it went against the old habits of memorizing giant texts or ideas or arguments and being able to recreate them on the spot and the beauties of the different nuances that would happen when they were uh, memorized and brought up, right? Similarly, I remember at some point reading about how uh, many generals in a Renaissance era being against uh, uh, bullets being used 
Similarly, as generals before them had complained against arrows because they fought arrows and later on bullets were technologies that weren't really uh, representative of the ideals of the one-to-one combat and the uh, traditional uh, rules of engagement, right? Uh, and, And that typical discussion continues on and on and on. The discussion that we're having today about the use of AI and if it is questioning the fact that an artist should or should not be making visual arts, music, literature, or even being a host of a podcast, uh, I think will sound as antiquated as any of these uh, phrases. This is something that will be almost impossible to stop. And it is something that eventually the market will decide what it prefers. There are a lot of people who are out there, you know, technologists from Elon Musk all the way down, interestingly, who are saying, slow down. We don't know what's going to happen. Um, there's a letter that's been put out and, and you know, it's sort of, it's sort of very clear that, that there's no organized way to stop this from moving forward, right? People can put out a bunch of letters. People put out letters all the time calling for political or other kinds of change. And, you know, usually nothing happens or things continue on their path, right? When you think about this, this inexorable march forward, like where does this, as you think about, you know, how you will live and and create and operate as an entrepreneur inside this environment, like how do you sort of, how do you parse that in your own head? How do you plan for the future? How do you envision your response? I, yes, I, I, I believe it is impossible to stop the development of artificial intelligence. It makes no sense to even attempt it because we're mm-hmm. currently in a cold war of sorts. We're in an arms race to see who can get to general artificial intelligence and super artificial intelligence first. So even if uh, Elon Musk and the rest of the scientists uh, in charge of developing a variety of different AIs could all get together within the US and say, hey, we're going to stop for six months to try and figure this out. You can't get the Russians to stop. You can't get the Chinese to stop. You can't get a variety of other private companies to stop. The reward of arriving at uh, AGI first is too big. It's never going to happen. And so unfortunately, we will just have to live with the repercussions of an AI that we haven't had time to understand, let alone to be able to control. And that's going to bring a wide variety of problems that we're going to have to deal with. One of the biggest problems there is naturally, can we get it to... um, align its uh, ideals with our own? Uh, Can we figure out how to stop potential bias? Uh, Can we uh, figure out how to make its access democratic? Uh, Can we figure out how to slow the level of disruption or control it or dosify it in a way that we can adapt in time? Unfortunately, most probably none of these are a yes. So uh, for us right now, it's, it's, uh, I think all we can do is be as flexible as possible, as open as possible, and, and try to think from first principles and not think linearly. 
try to think based on the information and the evidence that we're compiling and change our minds accordingly and leave our ideologies behind and leave our past experience behind. FOMO. FOMO. I agree with you. I think it's impossible to slow down. It's hard to know how quickly things will go or what will the implications be per se. But if you think about the last 20 years, 25 years, of the internet, if you look at if you look to that for examples, or you look to the nuclear age and the proliferation of nuclear uh, sort of weapons and other power and things like that, and you look at how uh, <laughs> how they were developed and how they disseminated, g- government is always the last to show up mm-hmm. for a bunch of different. A lot of times, just because the people who run government don't use these technologies. So they just don't even appreciate it, right? Like you watch Mark Zuckerberg testify before a bunch of 85-year-olds in the American Senate and you get a sense of the fact that there's just not the capacity to regulate. And then you add the international factor, which you've highlighted. You know, you think the UN, I mean, the UN can't even like figure out how to stop a minor skirmish in some country. How could they possibly tackle this, right? So it is, there's sort of, it really is the private sector uh, to a degree that is going to be much more sort of, let's say, rigorous. But then the thing about technology, as we know, especially this kind of technology, is that it is decentralized and that there are people anywhere all over the world who can harness it and use it for good or bad or, or whatever. And and so it is, it, is, it is fair to assume, I think, as you're doing, that it is going to be a very, <laughs> let's say, uh, the wild, wild west or, or a very uncontrolled environment. And so as you, as you sort of accept that as the operating principle, you know, what can we as sentient humans who have these tools, and by the way, and you know, we all have to get better at our prompts mm-hmm. and figure out how to use these things, but what can we all do to prepare ourselves yeah. To live in this world of uncertainty. I think the first thing we can do to prepare ourselves for an AI world is to understand exponential growth, right? So when we had our conversation six months ago and I kept rambling about AI and its impact, for you, it just seemed like I was particularly obsessed with AI, but it didn't seem to be hitting uh, any uh, pre-existing alarmish notion, right? And then just a few right. months it was later, very theoretical for me at that exactly, point yeah very theoretical exactly. and then a few months later chat gpt comes up with a version that all of a sudden everyone could experience and see and starts to be clear now when when we try to understand ai it is vital to understand the exponential nature which it grows right and so there's such a thing as moore's law that is a, a, a law based on the idea that basically chips double in capacity uh, every year and a half, more or less. Uh, That exercise is very hard for us as humans to understand, right? Because we think backwards and we think of how things have grown backwards and we try to project that same thing into the future. Now I'm gonna do a very simple exercise which is just to grow exponentially uh, in 10 years and see how much it would grow. If you say, how much will technology grow in 10 years? Yeah, people think, okay, it will double, it will triple. It will be four times more. It will be 10 times more. The answer is it will be a thousand times more. But we don't have that logic in our head because we keep thinking based on our experience. If we were to do the math and we go one, two, four, 8, 16, 32, 64, 128, 256, 
512, 1024, that's exponential growth in 10 years. So the trick is we need to start thinking logically based on evidence, based on data, and not based on our past experience. That's what's very difficult to do. The moment we can start doing that, we will be in a better position to actually evaluate the reality of what we're trying to confront. Right? And so that's a fascinating subject uh, that is, I think, the key foundation for us to try to start adapting to what's going to happen. Because if, if an AI is moving at that, that speed, and it's not moving at that speed in one area, but in every single area in parallel, and impacting every area in parallel, and having a global market of uh, 7 billion people that will be reacting to that technology and trying to build technology over that IP as fast as possible, the speed of disruption and the crossovers of technologies are going to be so fast, so vast, so deep that it goes beyond anything we've known before. And that's when the real problems and questions start happening. Yeah. And the thing is, I mean, it's really easy to then start down the path of thinking of all the negatives, right? Oh, I mind, you know, what will I do for work? If, you know, if you're an editor or, you know, there's a ton of jobs that you know, you can see the risk or there'll be misinformation and disinformation or what happens if terrorists get, you know, there's a million negative scenarios, but then there are these scenarios that are very easy to imagine where you could see the cure for cancer, where you could see, you know, tr the, the, the cure for energy supply. So there's like all this, it is amazing. It's an amazing time to be alive. Granted, we don't know how it's going to play out. Granted, there's going to be lots of terrible investments and lots of people speculating and losing money and doing crazy things, but you have to be in the game. And I think that's why I wanted you to come on is because when I met you, this is just like, I want to give everybody else that experience that I have is when we sat down at lunch, we just had an awesome combo and I enjoyed speaking with you. And I was like, wow, this guy's so insightful. But then the world caught up to you and I was sort of like, ah. Oh, you know, I, should, I really should have paid attention more more carefully because he he gave me a guidebook into the future. So, so this is just you know everybody wake up, start looking around, start thinking about the exponential changes. And Sebastian, I was you know I'd love to ask you one one thing about this subject, which is very interesting, is that it's really developing real time, and there is there's all these you know unlike you know when you're studying art history where you can go out to a library or whatever, and buy great books and read up on it. Here, the it's really hard to know where to go. Like, where should people be, if they want to inform themselves, where should people go to to get smart on this? What are the places? Is it, you know, are there Twitter accounts? Is it is it YouTube videos? Like, where are those places? Who are those thinkers? Um, I, I think you, you want to keep tabs on, on the main people involved. So it, it's good to follow any interview by Sam Altman, the CEO of OpenAI, for example, or a couple of, of the people that follow him in the chain of command. You want to always be listening to Elon and etc. But there's a wide variety of less famous characters out there that are constantly talking. This is the year of AI, almost like before there was the year of crypto or so on. This is just the beginning, but 2023, there will be an abundance of information about AI. 
Um, I think what's important uh, is to keep weekly tabs. I mean, this thing is moving so fast that it's not good enough to go check it every two months. You're going to be checking it on a weekly basis at least. Um, and then I think one of the interesting things here is there are the there are the experts in AI, and then you want to maybe follow a few philosophers or a few people that might be imagining scenarios because. Most of the experts today, they're focused on the mechanics of improving AI, right? But there are very few people who are uh, acting as futurists and are imagining almost like George Orwell in his time imagined a series of future scenarios uh, or Isaac Asimov imagined all kinds of, of novels and stories. I think it's important that some of us are also asking those questions. And there's a big space for those questions because uh, there are no experts in what is coming. The vast majority of the experts are the experts in the technology per se, not in the repercussions. And so there's a beautiful space for uh, those who understand the technology enough, yet are incredibly interested and sensitive to history, cultural changes, uh, macroeconomics, politics, etc., that can start projecting potential scenarios that we need to start discussing. And I think that might even be more important because the technology will take care of itself. What will happen with that technology is something we need to try and start guessing as quickly as possible. So Sebastian, I'm going to make you do that because because you're one of those people for me. It's two, uh, 2033, so we're 10 years down the line. Um, I pull up in my, you know, flying car to freeze London, and you're being featured, and you've just made something new, and I walk in the door. What have you made? Okay. What are you debuting? Well, I think... It goes beyond that. So first, there's no flying cars. Uh, flying cars are, for now, required too much noise, and they push too much wind, and it's a bit <sighs> of a mess. So no, Why you got to do that to me, man? Uh, <laughs> I mean, that would be the logical thing. For now, the engineering of flying cars okay. is a little far away. Uh, there definitely won't be freeze. There won't be an art fair like freeze 10 years from now because its importance will have died away, and the market of the art gallery will be pretty dead 10 years from now. This idea mm -hmm. of representing artists that make uh, physical goods that get to be collected and belong to uh, old technologies such as painting or so on, uh, it, it won't be connected to the times. 10 years from now, the level of economic and technological disruption will be such that uh, we should have the world split in two. And so you, you, we should have uh, China on one side, very strongly maybe connected to Russia and maybe with some African areas or some South American areas and the US, Europe, etc. separated, uh, will have different currencies. Uh, we should have a consistent uh, 
a consistent level of social disruption. So imagine the Floyd uh, yeah, repercussions that we had. Imagine it almost as if right. uh, we should have small civil wars going off everywhere at the same time in parallel. Historically, whenever there's an unemployment of over 10%, there is immediately there's protests and, and riots and so on. And uh, even though technology creates more jobs than it takes away, in the in-between, when there's disruption and all of a sudden very quickly a company is able to uh, remove entire categories of workers, that will bring a lot of fear, a lot of uh, uh, anxiety and a lot of protests. And so maybe even big events of these kinds will be stuff that we'll tend to avoid because they will be related to protests and they will be related to, to, to complaints. Um, I think works within the arts uh, will be very existential in nature on one side and on the other side will be incredibly effectist. You will be seeing artworks that will no longer be flat in front of you, but will be three-dimensional, uh, will be moving, changing, adapting, evolving, and most probably also adapting to the viewer. So it will be able to recognize who you are and know your past uh, browser history and be able to adapt to that which you will like. Mm. So we'll be almost uh, as if we're all seeing a... Uh, a it's almost as if we were seeing an accident happen in real time and we're each focusing on different aspects. We live the same experience, but we experience it differently depending on our perspective. That's how artworks should be in the future. This would make sense for me 10 years from now out of logic. All right. Well, you know what? <laughs> Assuming that we're still doing FOMO sapiens and that it hasn't been completely disintermediated, I'm going to keep this handy and I will come back and we'll have you back to talk about it in 10 years. Uh, if you want to find out more about Sebastian, you can check out his Instagram, which is great, by the way. It's It won't be around in 10 years, but enjoy it now. It's at Sebastian Studio. And you can also find his website at Sebastian.studio. All right, Sebastian Arasuris, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much, Patrick. And um, I, I think... Uh, for any content creator today, we need to move as fast as possible, creating the yeah. biggest audience possible and creating a strong connection to our viewers so that we can survive the uh, wave, the tidal wave of content that is about to come out now. So I think that's, uh, that's totally our, our homework for now for the moment. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Oh, it's a big, big job. Thank you. Want more FOMO Sapiens on Phone Monday? Head over to FOMOSapiens.com where you can listen to past episodes, learn more about the show, and find out how to advertise. You can also connect with me on Instagram at Patrick J. McGinnis and on Twitter at PJ McGinnis.